Welcome to the Planet Earth podcast. I'm Richard Hollingham, and this time we're in a rather muddy farmyard with some cows to learn about the origins of dairy farming. Although we will be talking to a scientist about that as well. Also, we'll be hearing how climate change could be affecting the migration patterns of birds. It's really important that if these are birds are being influenced by climate change, then there's a whole range of other species that could be impacted by climate change. These contented cows live at Windhurst Farm, which is part of the University of Bristol Veterinary School, and we're a few miles southwest of the city. I'm in the calf shed, which, as its name suggests, has stalls on either side of a central area full of the cutest calves you can imagine. Very fragile-looking creatures, black and white, looking rather suspiciously at the person with the microphone in the middle. And with me is Julie Dunn, an archaeological scientist from the university who's investigating how we first started rearing cattle for their milk. And I'm also joined by David Hitchens, the farm manager here. David, before we start, let's talk about these, these calves around us. Some of them are, are tiny. Yeah, they are pretty fragile when they're first born, and um, they do take a bit of nurturing to get them off the ground. Certainly the first month of life, you've got to be pretty careful with them, and then um, they really start to speed away once they get going. Now, Julie, you found the first direct evidence in Africa of prehistoric people, this is around, what, 7,000 years ago, rearing cattle for milk. Yes, uh, in the Libyan Sahara, and milk and uh, its products, butter, cheese and yoghurt, were clearly extremely important to these these people. We knew that um, around about... 8,000 BC, so around about 10,000 years ago, uh, people started dairying in Eurasia, and that moved, people moved with those cattle that they were dairying right across Europe and into Britain. But what we didn't know is what was happening in Africa. And we find those people from the, the sort of that Near East region were moved from there down into Africa with their cattle. And so what was your work concerning? What did you look at? Well, what we looked at was uh, lipids in ceramics that were excavated from a rock shelter in the region. And and those lipids tell us that those people were using milk products and also animal fat products and processing them in their pots. And they were using this milk for what? Well, they probably would have been making um, butter, cheese and yoghurt. We could tell it was processed in the pots. And um, the reason they would have probably processed it is because most humans are, well, all humans then were lactose intolerant. And in other words, they couldn't drink milk. They would have been quite ill. They would have had very unpleasant symptoms. So if you process milk, that reduces a lot of the lactose uh, content. And um, they could have uh, eaten it without becoming ill. So these pots were from... 7,000 years ago, so prehistory. And in that time, we've managed to evolve the ability to digest milk. Yes, it's it's quite remarkable, really. It's a very good example of selection in action. Around about 10,000 years ago, when people started dairying and settling down, living a farming lifestyle, as opposed to being hunter-gatherers, nobody could tolerate milk. But obviously the new technology comes in. There are these wonderful creatures called cows. They're walking larders. And um, people obviously want a bit of this new technology. They're like the new, the iPad of the ancient world. And um, once you start processing these, these milk products and, and using them, within about a 1,000 years, a gene evolves which uh, allows people to tolerate milk, so we become lactase persistent. How do you know they were after the milk rather than milk as a, as a by-product, that milk was the, the key to this? 
Uh, well, we can identify whether they were processing either milk or the um, fats from the animal, the flesh of the animal, in the pots. And when we looked at the lip, what we do, what we call lipid analysis, 50% of the pots showed evidence that milk was processed in them. So it was clearly important to these people. And uh, bear in mind that the, these, this region, although it had been quite green and wet in the sort of last 10,000 years, it was beginning to dry up. And as cattle start to come in the air, into the area, you're getting these periods of aridity. And cattle are important because they're, you know, they're a source of, of liquid on the hoof, as it were. So these people were moving around the landscape with their cattle, and they'd be able to, if there wasn't any water, they'd be able to get a drink from the cattle. And so the cattle became much more valuable uh, for producing milk than they did for meat or, or byproducts like the skins or whatever. Yes, we think so. We think so. We think it's the actual, what we call the secondary products of the animal, the milk, the cheese, the butter, the yogurts. We think that's what, those were the things that were much more important to ancient people rather than um, the actual flesh of the animal. Why would you kill something that is going to you know, give you food every day? What sort of difference did this make to, to humans then and human civilization? The transition from becoming hunter-gatherers to settling down, it enabled really the sort of development of, of you know, uh, much bigger communities and so on, and which eventually led to the uh, establishment of things like city-states and so on and so on, and, and, and finally to where we are today. And David, where are we today? I mean, how important is milk and is cheese and all the things we can get from, from cows? It's a huge industry, the dairy industry, and... Um, like you say, the things we can get from cows are very important because we're, we're all very much now driven by the end market of where our milk's going and what it's for. Uh, and what's interesting in the UK is we value milk to drink. Yeah, we do. Well, um, in the UK, we drink a lot of fresh milk, so it's got to be transported um, you know, within a, a very short time because it has a short shelf life. It's also got to be kept refrigerated. Elsewhere in the world, if they do drink milk, usually it's UHT milk that's heat-treated has a much longer shelf life and doesn't need to be refrigerated. So we are quite unique in that fact. I mean, no one likes UHT milk. And, Julie, what point do you think we started drinking the stuff? What would have happened if, if these people 7,000 years ago drank the milk, for instance? Well, um, they would have probably been quite ill because we didn't have the lactase persistence gene back then. So if they were to drink milk as it stood, most of them probably would have had some uncomfortable symptoms. So this was happening in Africa. Yeah. How did we end up here, farming cows, drinking milk, making cheese, all this stuff? Yeah, yeah we, we really do see a kind of a different pattern emerging in Europe. So cattle are actually domesticated in Europe, we think, and they move into Africa. But they also move with people the other way and spread out right across Europe and into Britain and Ireland, finally getting here around about 4,000 BC, so 6,000 years ago. And um, pretty much across Europe depending on local conditions sometimes, but people settled down, they became farmers, and they started using milk and its products. So cattle turn out to be incredibly important for these prehistoric people and for the development of humans, and they're still important today. A absolutely, yes. Uh, we know these, these cattle were incredibly important to these ancient humans. For a start, they, they created the most remarkable rock art, which shows how, mu how much they clearly thought about and relied on their animals. Cattle are one of the things that drives humans, that are part of the setting down process and the, the sort of beginnings of our civilization. So, and they were clearly just as important then as they are today. And David, do you feel the importance of these animals? Well, yeah, just as we're chatting now, you know, it occurs to me that 
dairy farming today is so high tech, high tech and specialised, and um, you know it's had to have come from somewhere. And of course, essentially, although we've bred them for their genetics, they're the same cows that would have been around all these years ago that we've just been talking about. So yeah, the, the direct link is incredibly significant. Mm, definitely, yeah, yeah. With Julie Dunn from the University of Bristol and David Hitchens, the manager here at Windhurst Farm. Thank you both. This is the Planet Earth podcast. We'll put some pictures from today's recording on our Facebook page. These calves are irresistible. <laughs> you can also follow us on Twitter. Just search for Planet Earth Online. Climate change could be altering the migration patterns of seabirds. And a team led by the University of Glasgow is studying one seabird in particular. They're called prions, a petrel whose beaks filter food from the sea. They're especially fond of tiny crustaceans known as copepods. Well, last year, over 2,000 prions were discovered dead or dying on a New Zealand shore after a major storm. And the species' decline has also been linked to failing food supplies, resulting from from changes in the climate. Sue Nelson went to meet James Grecian from the University of Glasgow to find out more about these seabirds. Prions are small seabirds, about the same size as a a puffin. They've got a similar wingspan, but much lighter. They're only a couple of hundred grams. So very, very small birds, and they breed in large colonies, sometimes up to maybe two million pairs around the Southern Ocean in places like New Zealand, the Falkland Islands. But because these birds are so abundant, they're, they're really major consumers in ecosystems. And so it's really important that if these birds are being influenced by climate change, then there's a whole range of other species that could be impacted by climate change. I mean, if copepods are moving and birds can't follow them, maybe fish can't too, and that has implications for global fish stocks. And how has the sort of abundance of copepods affected these particular birds? Plankton species are very, very susceptible to changes in temperature, so as the oceans warm, they'll move towards the poles. For species that target copepods, this could be a massive change. So if your main prey species is moving, you're going to have to adapt and change to try and follow them. And what I'm trying to work out is whether or not they can. So how do you do that? Well, we're doing a few things. Firstly, we can look at stable isotopes. So stable isotopes are non-radioactive isotopes in your body that you absorb as you're feeding. And they are relatively predictable. So they occur in relatively predictable patterns around the Southern Ocean. And so we can use that as a guide to try and understand where copepods are. So if we can sample prion feathers we can look at the isotopes in those feathers and work out what the prions have been eating. We know it's copepods. We can try and work out where those copepods were and therefore where the prions were when they were eating them. Now, I notice you've got something that looks remarkably like some feathers in your pocket. Yeah, so I've got a a few samples of feathers here from um, a bird that was sampled in Gough Island in the middle of the southern Atlantic. And these are um, feathers sampled from a bird that was killed by skewers and they kill prions and eat prions and so round colonies in the southern ocean you find big piles of dead prions and it's a really really good resource for us to we can go along we can pick up and we can sample lots of birds that we know were killed on that colony so we know are probably from that colony and if we then use those feathers and analyze those feathers we can get an idea of where that bird was before it was killed let's see the length of these feathers probably they're not much longer than my fingers and they're different shades of grey remarkably like sort of what you'd expect a gull's feathers to be like yeah so they've got similar coloration in their gulls and one of the things that you can really tell if you see them at sea is that they have a very distinctive M shape across their back which starts with the the tip of the outer primaries and then goes in towards the base of the tail and then back down the other wing so when they're flying side on you can see this big M And so this feather I've got in my hand here is dark around the outside because it's one of the outer primary feathers. And so this was probably grown on the the centre of the wintering grounds. We believe that 
primary molt, so the molt of the main flight feathers in a bird, starts with the innermost primary and works towards the outermost primary. And that starts as they leave the breeding colony. So if we sample feathers from the outside of the wing, those are the feathers that are from the wintering grounds, and those will give us an idea of what the bird was feeding on at the wintering grounds. So what sort of chemicals are you looking for? What signature, in effect, are you trying to get from a feather like this one here? We sample small amounts of the feather and we we put it through a mass spectrometer working with the Scottish University's Environmental Research Centre in East Kilbride. And they basically blow it up and look at the elements that are in that sample that we've given them. And the two elements that we're mainly interested in are carbon and nitrogen. What does the amount of carbon and nitrogen actually tell you? We're interested in different isotopes of carbon and nitrogen. So we're interested in heavy carbon and heavy nitrogen. So this is carbon-13 and nitrogen-15. And they will accumulate in body tissues. So, for example, in nitrogen, the heavy nitrogen is much harder to metabolise than light nitrogen. And so as you're eating things, your body will withhold, will store, if you like, the heavy nitrogen because it's much easier to get rid of the lighter ones because it's easier to metabolise. And so for animals that forage very, very high up their food chain, there will have been this build-up in nitrogen or heavy nitrogen in their tissues. And so we can look at the ratio of nitrogen, of heavy nitrogen in their tissues, and that will give us some idea of where the bird's been foraging. And then you can tell how far they're moving as a result of climate change moving their source of food. Exactly. The other isotope they're interested in is carbon, and carbon is much better as an idea of of spatial differences because it's due to baseline productivity. So regions of the ocean that are very productive will have different carbon signatures to areas of the ocean that are less productive. And it's actually quite nice in that in the southern ocean, because of the way that the ocean fronts, the subtropical fronts and polar fronts are built up, there's actually a, a relatively predictable gradient in carbon. So if we look at the carbon isotopes, heavy carbon isotopes in our feathers, we can, to an extent within various confidences, get an idea of where along the Southern Ocean that bird was wintering. How accurate is your carbon data then? Not amazingly accurate. One of the problems with the Southern Ocean is that these fronts will move over time, and that's one of the things we're interested in. So what we want to do is we want to try and get a, a baseline to try and look at what the isotopes mean in space. And we can do that through tracking data. So by deploying tags on birds at the same time as looking at their isotopes, we can try and correlate the two to see what isotopes are associated with what areas in the wintering grounds. This research is is ongoing. How long are you going to be examining these birds? Hopefully we can have between three or four years' worth of tracking data, which will give us really good kind of idea of where these birds are wintering in the last five years. But one of the key things with using the isotope data is that we've got museum specimens from as early as 1871. So we can compare the isotopes in feathers today, in 2012, with birds that were killed on colonies 140 years ago. Will that tell you something about how their feeding grounds have changed then throughout and you could match that up with climate data? Hopefully that's, that's exactly what we're going to try and do. If we can look at the isotopes in these museum specimens that are 140 years old and see how different the isotope or the carbon isotopes ratios are, that will give us some idea of how much the birds may have moved in the wintering areas that they're using, which could well be due to climatic change. That's James Grecian from the University of Glasgow talking to Sue Nelson. And there's more about those tracking devices in past editions of the Planet Earth podcast. You can find the entire archive at Planet Earth Online. And Tamara Jones from Planet Earth Online is with me. We're just going to mention a couple of the stories on the website at the moment. And I think this is particularly interesting. It's a study about the growth of trees in the Arctic tundra. Interesting and worrying. 
It is interesting and worrying because the, the, their findings are kind of a little bit counterintuitive because what they found was that um, as trees start colonising the Arctic, when as the climate warms, so you get birch trees growing in sort of northern Sweden, you'd expect that that would be a really good thing because they'd store a lot of carbon in their stems, in their roots, in their, their branches and everything. And um, they would absorb carbon dioxide from the air and it, it yeah. would be good. So it yeah. would put a, a break, if you like, on... On Arctic warming, but yeah, climate change. Yeah, exactly. That's what that's what you'd expect. But actually, what they found was the complete opposite. And the reason for that is because there's loads and loads of carbon stored in the soils in the Arctic um, tundra sort of regions, and because of the relationship between the roots and the microbes in these Arctic soils, the microbes end up kind of releasing a lot of the carbon in the soils because they break it down. So therefore, all that carbon's going up into the atmosphere, and so doing the opposite of what what the researchers kind of thought might happen. And presumably you're then going to get some sort of loop because as it warms you get more trees and more trees releases more carbon. Yeah, exactly. So as, as the climate warms and you get more birch trees growing further north and they're growing into these, these, this soil full of carbon, um, all that carbon gets released. So these University of Exeter researchers kind of were quite surprised at this finding. It's uh, another worrying climate change story. Um, let's go back, another archaeology story, and this concerns the uh, origins of Britain's tin mining industry. Yeah, that's right. Well, we're looking at sort of 2500 BC, approximately, and researchers from the University of Aberdeen wanted to look at, they wanted to kind of add to the body of evidence, the archaeological body of evidence about who was using tin and where it was being used and how. And so what they did was they took a, um, a four-metre core from a peat bog in Cornwall. Now, the reason they went for a peat bog is because when you do some tin mining, you during tin mining, there are byproducts that are released into the atmosphere. Now, they get rained down into these peat bogs. So basically, in this core they were looking at is a record of what was going on in the mining industry years and years ago, for thousands of years ago. And so what did they find? Well, they found, to their surprise, that uh, previous sort of thoughts were that the Romans must have been using tin from um, Spain um, in their products, you know, things like jewellery, armoury, that sort of thing. And these researchers found uh, that actually tin was being used from southwest England, from, from Cornwall, much, much earlier than previously thought. And they're pretty sure it was the Romans who were using the tin because when the Romans left Britain, the record of those byproducts in the cores pretty much sort of stopped so the Roman army, the, the Roman Empire, was using Cornish tin. Yeah, exactly, Cornish tin, that's right, really important stuff. Thanks, Tamara. More on both those stories at Planet Earth Online. And that's the Planet Earth podcast from the Natural Environment Research Council. From me, Richard Hollingham, and the cows here at Windhurst Farm in Somerset, thanks for listening.